Let me start us tonight with a little bit of good family news. Um, baby Landon Cobb showed up, I think, yesterday. So there's the... Ashley looks awesome. Carson looks tired. I'm not sure. <laughs> not sure how. I guess coaching is really hard and hard work, but we wanted you guys to be able to rejoice with uh, them and their, and their new little one. Let me uh, share a couple of statistics, kind of sobering statistics I ran across recently. Here they are. Congregations that would accept a member of a cohabiting unmarried couple as a lay leader. 31%, almost a third. Congregations that would accept a member of an openly homosexual couple as a lay leader. 23%, almost a quarter. That's kind of shocking uh, for me that, that the virtue bar would be set so low or be so confused for leadership. The Apostle Paul, as we're going to see today, would beg to differ, right? In our passage today, in our study of the New Testament book of Titus, he sets forth a way higher bar for leadership in Christ's church. The passage we're looking at today is a strong challenge for our leaders, especially our elders at Northwaite. My brothers, this is the bar for us. We must be this caliber of men increasingly. I remember a conversation I had with one of our church planters before he was a church planter. And he was sorting out what it would be like to be a pastor. And he asked me, what was the, what was the biggest challenge I faced as a pastor? And I told him that was easy to answer. And that the answer was shepherding my own dark heart. Um, and today the Apostle Paul is going to raise the bar for leadership beyond our reaching on our own. We need the mercy of Christ to even begin to move in this direction. And that mercy comes to us as leaders most freely through your prayers, church. If you don't hear anything else tonight, hear me calling you to pray for your leaders. Be a people who prays for their leaders. We are in desperate need of your prayers. But this is not only a challenge to our leaders. This passage we're going to look at tonight is a challenge to us all. These qualifications Paul sets forth for leaders in the church in this passage are really not just for leaders. They are broad Christian virtues that are vital for all of us in the ministries that God asks of each one of us. Pastor Claude Alexander puts the need forward this way. He says, there are questions that beg to be answered. There are dilemmas to be overcome. There are gaps to be filled and the challenge is for you to fill them. There is a purpose for you, your being here. You are meant to answer something, solve something, provide something, lead something, discover something, compose something, write something, say something, translate something, interpret something, sing something, create something, teach something, preach something, bear something, overcome something, and in doing so, you improve the lives of others under the power of God for the glory of God. I think that's true for everyone who calls North Wake home. You are here 
to influence others as you follow Christ. You are here to make a vital contribution to this little piece of the body of Christ at North Wake. But to do the thing that God has before you to do, you must be the person that God has for you to be. And so tonight we're going to look at the New Testament qualifications for elders in the church. It's important, though, that you listen with one ear for what God is calling you to be, who God is calling you to be. These traits, they're to mark us all. And so as you sit under this uh, teaching tonight, there are two questions that are pressing each one of us. Here they are. How can I pray for our elders? And which of these traits is God asking me to grow in? And so if you'll find your way to Titus chapter 1 in the New Testament of your Bibles, I'd like to pray for us. Let's pray. Lord, be kind to us tonight and help us see the beautiful vision you give for our lives, for our leaders especially, but for all our lives as your people. And uh, by the mercy of your spirit, give us enablement to walk this way. Have mercy on us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in the first chapter of our study of a letter from the Apostle Paul to his long-standing partner and, and mentee in his New Testament missionary church planting work, a man named Titus. We're at verse 5 of the very first chapter. We just started this study last week, and this is how it reads. Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, Titus so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul and Titus have evidently been ministering on the island of Crete together at some prior point in time. And Paul then left Titus there to strengthen the churches by helping them put leaders into place. Leaders that he refers to as elders. Now, if you remember from last week, this is perhaps of special urgency on Crete because of the false teaching and cultural pressures the church is facing there, right? Paul describes the situation on the island this way. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. He goes on to say, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So it's definitely a situation that's in need of mature, godly, exemplary leadership. And so Paul is helping Titus here with the selection process by giving him a list of qualifications for the elders who are to lead the congregations on the island of Crete. And we can break his list in verses 6 through 9 into four target areas. Family, no-nos, yes-yeses, and the Bible. Okay, maybe you can remember them that way. Now, um, this list occurs elsewhere in the New Testament for other churches. So it has broader application for the church than just the troubled situation on Crete. It has application really for all churches, it seems, including ours. This is why our church is led by a team of elders. It follows Paul's pattern that we see here. 
Um, but remember now, these traits we're about to look at, they're for us all. Uh, primarily our elders, but not exclusively. So that we're becoming the kind of people it's th- that are salt and light in our city, in our day. So, so listen up for what Paul is saying to you about being a Christ follower as he lays out these qualifications for church leadership. Let me read them for us in verses 6 through 9. Paul says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is God's good word for us. Thanks be to God. All right, so verse six that we just read shows us Paul's first target uh, for elder qualifications for these churches and, and for ours. He says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So his first target is really a focus on the family, right? And, um, but before he goes there, he says that an elder must be above reproach. This is kind of a general, um, kind of a headliner for what he's about to say. It just means he has a good reputation, one that would not be damaging to the church. And then he turns to the home life of the leader and to two areas where an elder must be above reproach in his home life, his marriage and his parenting. And all he says about a leader's marriage here is kind of a cryptic little simple phrase, he must be the husband of one wife. And most married guys here are going, it's good, only got me one. I got that one, right? Um, that more literally the language could be said um, a one-woman man, a one-woman kind of man, right? And the language here is focused on the husband because in the New Testament, elders are exclusively men. Um, We follow that practice here at North Wake. We esteem the leadership of our women. They meet with our elders. They advise our elders. But elders, as we understand the New Testament teaches, it's a role for men in the church. And I know that's a position that's hard to grasp these days. And if you wrestle with that teaching, if it doesn't make sense to you how that could possibly be, uh, I encourage you to talk with one of our leaders about that. Um, Or if you want to read a bit, we are fortunate as a church that one of our elders has written a book where he addresses that topic in a really helpful way. It's called 40 Questions on Elders and Deacons, and it's by Ben Merkel, one of our elders. Super helpful format, 40 questions. You can just look at the ones that are important, and he's got three distinct chapters on this very issue of why he believes um, and why our church really believes that um, elders, according to the New Testament, should be men. But um, we won't have any more time to explore that tonight, but what does Paul have in mind when he says that an elder must be a one-woman man, um, does that mean that he must be married? Um, does that mean no polygamy? Um, does it mean that he's never been divorced? Um, some scholars believe that precludes a man from being an elder if he's ever committed adultery. Um, 
But it seems best to me in light of what Paul does in the following verses as he lists all of these traits that his main concern is focused on a man's present character. These other factors may shape it, um, but primarily he's concerned with a man's present character. Is he a man marked by fidelity to the woman that he is married to, if in fact he is married? Um, some of you may recall a story I've told before by Christopher Ash. Uh, it catches the sense of why this trait is so important to Paul that he starts his list with it. He says, some years ago, a dispute arose in Britain between the Foreign Office and the Treasury. The argument was about which British ambassadors would be provided with a Rolls Royce for their official duties in a foreign capital. The Treasury, unsurprisingly, wanted these wonderful cars restricted to a few, perhaps Washington, Moscow, and Paris. The Foreign Office argued for many more based on the following reasoning. Most people in a foreign capital have never been to Britain, they said. But when they see this magnificent car gliding through their streets with the United Kingdom flag on the hood, they will say to themselves, I have not been to Britain. I don't know much about Britain. But if they make cars like that there, then Britain must be a wonderful place. Christopher Ash says, in a similar way, it is Christ's hope that men and women may say to themselves as they watch a Christian marriage, I have never seen God. Sometimes I wonder when I look at the world if God is good or if there even is a God. But if he can make a man and a woman love one another like this, if he can make this husband show costly faithfulness through sickness as well as health, if he can give him resources to love his wife with Christ-like sacrifice, well then, he must be a good God. And if Christ can give this wife grace to submit so beautifully with such an attractive spirit, then again, he must be a good God. See, the intent of God is that we in our marriages are his Rolls Royces, right? We put the beauty of our God on display. So please, church, pray for our elders' marriages that we would be what I call gladly faithful to our wives. Not too long ago, I gave this little uh, word art to my wife. You probably can't read it, but it says, thoughts of you make me smile. And it's in our, it's in our bedroom. And uh, I gave it to her because increasingly, I find that's the case. I just watch her, and it makes me smile. I watch the way she loves our family, and I smile. I watch the way she falls asleep at night watching the movie because she's loved our family so exhaustingly, and it just makes me smile. She walks in or out of her room. I watch her engage her friends, love our neighbors, and it just increasingly, it makes me smile. Church, pray that this would be always how our elders Think about our wives, always, with a glad faithfulness. Pray, church, for the protection of our marriages. Please, please. But there's that second question. 
How's your glad fidelity in your marriage, if you're married? How's your fidelity with your eyes, with your thoughts, with your browsing habits? Are you feeding your smile towards your spouse? You know, I have a friend who's in a particularly difficult parenting season. It's called teenagers. And um, her kids are ornery, and she and her husband struggle to get on the same page about how to deal with their orneriness. Um, But when she talks about him, she glows. I mean, she just lights up. Um, He obviously is the only one for her. Now, if you are dinged tonight by this question about glad fidelity, right? Talk with one of our pastors about getting a little help, right? And do it now, okay? It is with marriages as it is with engines. A tune-up is much easier than an overhaul, right? We'll do both, right, as needed. But if things are just a little tense and things are a little chippy and that seems to be more the tone than not, come talk with us. Let us help. There's a second target area of concern in the home that Paul addresses for leaders in the church and that concerns an elder's role in discipling his children. And It's in that same verse. It says his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And this one raises questions too, right? Uh, Like, does an elder have to have children? Does he have to have more than one? Because it talks about his children, plural. Must the children be Christians? Is that what it means? Uh, How old do they have to become Christians if that's what it means, right? It raises lots of questions. Not the least of it is, what is debauchery? Um, and you can just substitute, a better translation for us is probably wild and, and rebellious, okay, instead of debaucherous and insubordinate. Um, it seems likely here that the focus is on the fruit of the father's discipling of his children while they are in his home as an evidence of his faithfulness in that role. That's really the concern, is the father faithfully discipling his children. His parenting role in their lives would not leave them on their own to be described as wild and rebellious. The language could be rendered about his children that they are faithful rather than believing, and that may be faithful with respect to their dad's teaching and example, since a father really cannot control his children's salvation. So this may be a better understanding of saying that these children must believe, that they must be rather be faithful. It also seems better to align with Paul's similar statement about qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy, another letter he wrote to Timothy. In chapter 3 it says that an elder must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 
Brian Chappell writes, we are not necessarily looking at the beliefs and actions of one child, but at the character of the family as a whole. Our assessment is to be based on observations of children's conduct and convictions made over time, not on isolated statements or actions. Tim Chester, another author, gets at the sense of it when he says, as they grow up, they, his children, may start to question those beliefs that he's passed on to them, but in their early years, they should reflect the faith of their parents because their parents are intentionally teaching and modeling faith to them and exerting loving discipline rather than allowing their children to be wild and disobedient. So this does not exclude men whose children have grown up to reject the faith or whose young children are not perfect. The key issue here is that potential elders must already be leading well in their home. So the questions are, is an elder above reproach in his parenting? Is his faithful discipling evident in the lives of his children that are under his care? Please pray for our elders in this. Right? As a father of five and a granddad of seven, um, I know this is, a, this is a truly great challenge. And Satan can use this to really um, bring despair to an elder. We often feel inadequate in these matters. To wisely and lovingly and faithfully shepherd the little ones under our care is a God-sized task. Please pray for us as we shepherd our kids. And then there's that second question. If you have kids, how's your parenting going? Are you actively passing on the virtues of faith in Christ to your children? Practices of prayer in your home with your kids. Opening the Bible with them. Leading them to a, to a steadfast commitment to church. Loving, steady discipline. Do those describe you? Maybe this is your area that God wants you to grow in. Right? And again, we're eager to help. One writer put it this way, Paul says here to Titus, the most important reference for a church leader is what goes on in his home life. It's true. Well, Paul now leaves the target of family and he turns to what I call the no-nos, right? These, these are in verse seven. An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, he says once again. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Okay. Paul here calls the elders overseers. The titles seem to be interchangeable. Same, same. Overseers, probably more descriptive of what an elder actually does. Um, and pastor and elder are really interchangeable in the New Testament as well, it seems. So that our elders at our church are really pastors as well. And you'll hear us on Sunday morning. Some of us will use one title as we introduce ourselves and others will use another. It's kind of same, same, it seems. Here they're called God's stewards because what they oversee belongs to God. It's not their church. It's Christ's. And then he lists five no-nos for elders, things that must not mark their character. And again, it's been said that Paul's primary concern is not finding the people with the best skills. His primary concern is with character. And so he lists these five things that they simply cannot be marked by. Arrogance, quick temper, uh, addictions such as uh, drunken, 
drunkenness, um, violence, greed. These are disqualifying marks for anyone wanting to lead the church. And now the sense, as you look down that list, the sense of those terms is pretty clear here. So um, in the interest of our time tonight, I, rather than elaborate on them, I'd like to encourage you first to use this list as a way to pray for our leaders. In particular, if there was one that I would ask you to pray first for our elders at North Wake, it would be the first one on Paul's list, arrogance or it's more covert uh, sibling pride. And part of that is because this is a ceaseless struggle of mine, right? Um, And it's easy for me to walk into a conversation with our elders, and um, maybe I'm not prevailing in the conversation that night. This happens more often than I wish. Um, The guys won't listen to me, and I'm thinking... I got 30 years of pastoral experience. Come on, guys. Ta-da, I'm here, you know. Why don't I get my way? We have elders who are successful businessmen. During the day, they are the boss. But they aren't the boss of our elders, right? That can be an adjustment. We've got others who are professors. They are true scholars and they wonder why don't these jokers just listen to me right you get the idea pride is a special hazard for the successful and the experienced and the learned pray for us against pride it stalks us almost every meeting Pray that we would be humble like Jesus and we would truly believe that we're the least important person in the room. But there is that second question, right? Which of these five things is atop your no-no list, right? Arrogance? Or do you have a quick temper? Are you, are you addicted to drinking or to porn or to whatever, to food? Georgia football? Whatever might happen to be. Seems to be an epidemic of that these days. Are you abusive in your home? Are you violent? Are you greedy? See, these things, they die slow deaths by means of prayerful obedience and scripture skillfully and faithfully applied, a mentor to help you kill these kinds of vices that have attached to your soul is a near necessity. You need someone to help you get free of these kinds of things. Are any of them yours? Do any of them describe you? Well, Paul now turns from his no-no list to his yes-yes list to the things that an elder must be marked by, right? And there are six items in the yes-yes list. In verse 8, an elder must be hospitable, a lover of good, 
self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Um, and again, time kind of prohibits exploring these in detail. I'll try to post a helpful article this week that talks more in detail about these things. But again, the main sense of these things is plain, just as you read them. And again, if I were to highlight one to pray most of our elders, I would again ask you to pray the first one in Paul's list, that we would be hospitable, men marked by hospitality. Um, the, it, it brings to mind an open home, but even more, I think, an open life where we welcome people into our homes and our schedules out of love for them. Hospitality is an expression of the love of Christ for those who are lonely and in need. And our elders, honestly, we're, we're all pretty busy. And sometimes we're too busy. And sometimes people who need our time sense that. So pray that we would not let the busyness of our days squeeze out the exercise of truly loving hospitality. Now I wonder, is one of these atop your yes list? Is one of these something you need to grow in? Hospitality? Loving what's good? Self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined? Which of these might you need to prayerfully work to put on all the more in your life. More discipline? More care given to fueling the love of what is good? Maybe in what you watch or what you take in? Um, doing good acts of service for others in the church? Um, but again, he's going to move now to the final bucket. He's gone. His first target was home and the second one was things the no-no list that an elder can't be marked by, and then the yes-yes list that must mark an elder. And the last target is an elder's commitment to and grasp of the Scriptures. Verse 9, he says, An elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. An elder must hold firm the teaching of Scripture, he's saying, basically. It must be his anchor, his hope, his trust. He has to be able to instruct others in it and even rebuke those who err, as Paul's going to put it in the passage we'll look at next week. He says, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. It's a kind of rebuke that restores people. Now, I would say this is a real strength for our elders for which I am deeply thankful. They have, without question, helped me stand firm in the truth of Scripture and not give in to compromise. Um, but again, when you have other strengths, you're good at business strategies or education plans or you got three decades of pastoral experience, it can loosen your dependence on the Word. as our only sure hope, and it can supplant the word as um, with something that we can do or we can control. So pray for this great strength of our team to remain that, to be protected from trusting lesser hopes and guides. But again, there's that second question. How about you? 
Do you have personal practice of Bible reading and study and meditation and such on the scriptures that put you on this track? Holding firm to the trustworthy word, able to teach others and even rebuke those who are in error? Correct them? Do you regularly engage the opportunities to study the Bible with others here in, in our church? You in a small group? You, you, you ever jump into one of those men's or women's studies that are offered from time to time? Or those adult discipleship classes Noah's talking about on, on Sundays? Is taking in the teaching of Scripture a consistent priority for you? It's a vital safeguard for you against the false teaching in our day, and that teaching is everywhere. Right? Now, I know we've, we've raced through this list, um, and there's a lot there. You know, there's more than a dozen things that we're supposed to do, and that can be overwhelming, paralyzing even. You can feel like you need to work on everything, on every list, on all four of the groups, right? Um, so here's what I would suggest. Pick one. Just one, pick one. Ask God to show you one. What's your next step in following Christ that's on this list? One area that you can give prayerful study and work uh, to for, for the foreseeable future, right? And get some help in that. Somebody who's a mentor or a guide whose life you respect in that area. There's a sense, though, even that one thing can be overwhelming. And there's a sense, I suppose, in which it should be. Because self-help is not a Christian path. Desperate dependence on God to give transforming mercy and strength is a Christian path. Okay. And prayer is a key expression of dependence on God. You should start by praying about your thing, your one area. Prayer every day, faithfully, that God would change you. There's more to it than that, but that's a good starting place. And so, as we wrap up this time in this passage tonight, I'd like us to pray, kind of as a starting point. Um, you can pray alone. If you're there with family or friends, you can kind of bunch up. If you're watching at home, you can gather around with your family if that works for you. And I'd like you to do two things. The first part of our time together, we'll, we'll pray first for our elders. You'll, I'm going to have you open up your Bibles to these verses or keep them open if they're already open and just look down that list and pray some, one of those things for our elders here at North Wake. And after a couple minutes, then I'm going to redirect you to pray for your own soul, to be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus who modeled all these traits perfectly for us and gives grace to enable us to follow him in all these good ways. So you have a chance just to think and pray as you look down that list about what's your one thing that you want to carry forward in prayer and study and, and obedience. Right? So if you would, open up your Bibles. And let's bow and take just a couple of minutes and pray first for our elders. You may know some of them by name. Um, it's a good time to pray for them by name. But look down that list of traits and qualifications there in your scriptures. And let's take just a couple of minutes and pray.